0: You're listening to Dead Air Podcast, part of splatterpictures.net. What's up, everybody? Wes Dead Air Knife here with always
1: Typical Lydia.
0: On today's show, we are getting back into our fan request movies. This one given to us by Jeff Campbell. Thank you, Jeff. Uh, The 1961 ghost story, The Innocents.
1: You're just trying to not say classic.
0: Well, we've been doing a lot of classics lately, and I've noticed since we edited a bunch of episodes altogether that I do say things are classic a lot. But this one really is a classic. This has got... Academy Award winners in it. This has got award-winning writers. This has got award-winning cinematography. This is a classy fucking endeavor. Almost too classy. For us? Well, no. If anyone's ever seen shots of where we record, for some reason, half of Lydia's house looks like it was furnished in, oh, the 1900s. Early 1900s. And... So people were just like, wow, what a classy endeavor. And then we talk about like a lot of gory splatter films and I say a lot of dick jokes. And, and then oh, we're... I'm
1: definitely waiting for some film where someone gets their face chopped right off. But
0: yeah, yeah. And, and
1: we do talk about that in a setting that is more suited to something like the film we're going to talk about today.
0: Mm-hmm. It's definitely a very classy endeavor. Now, The Innocence is a film directed by Jack Clayton. Uh, Deborah Kerr stars in it and it came out in a really interesting time in horror which was the decade of the 60s the 1950s was sort of an oddity as well we had moved past universal monsters they just weren't churning a profit anymore and what was really driving movie sales was the teenage crowd and the drive-in audience a lot of double features were brought to the drive-in and they are very cheap. Lots of creature features. Teenagers
1: lots from Mars.
0: Teenagers from Mars. And giant tarantulas and grasshoppers. Night and- of the Lepus. Yeah. <laughs> um,
1: Sorry, that's like the worst film ever. <laughs> we should do it for Easter.
0: Maybe. We'll put that in the maybe pile. Um, when the 1960s rolled around, That teenage audience was getting a little older and the sci-fi horror angle was dated and people were looking for something different. 1960s things like Psycho hit, Village of the Damned, and then 1961, The Innocents. This is a decade that also had Rosemary's Baby in it and Kate Fear and The Haunting, all kinds of Serious as a fucking heart attack horror films.
1: Very serious and very rich and very in tune to psychological issues of the day and very in tune with the cinematic tricks that could be employed, barring, of course, out-and-out special effects.
0: Now, we...
1: Thought, like, bloody and gore.
0: I'd also be remiss if I did not mention the fact that The 1960s also was where Hammer Horror was reigning supreme at the box office. Um, These new interpretations of gothic horror classic monsters were what everyone was into. Universal protested it at first, and then all of a sudden the very first one, which was their Frankenstein interpretation, I think it was The Curse of Frankenstein, and then that made a shit ton of money and then all of a sudden Universal's like, oh, okay, we'll co-produce them. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden their monsters were viable again, Hammer Horror handling everything. Jack Clayton specifically wanted to do something different from the classic monster characters that were coming out of Britain at the time. And so his answer to that was to keep it classic, stay in black and white, and let's do... A ghost story based predominantly on the novella turn of the screw although a lot of elements were taken from a stage play as well that under the same name from the 50s
1: yeah almost all of the dialogue is to be found in the original novella it Mm -hmm. was a not adapted loosely at all it was it's very 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 close um and in reading the turn of the screw you could you know do a read-along in a certain way Mm -hmm. to this there's uh for those interested um and lazy there are audio books available on youtube of course yeah it's about four four five hours it's about a four hour read like it's not hard to get through and the language isn't you know You won't trip over the language. It's very, very simple language, Mm. much like the film, which makes it so digestible and timeless. And I could see it being digestible and timeless when it came out and even now. Aside from all the impeccable acting, wonderful fucking locations, and the amazing outfits, the costuming is perfect. And that's another thing that ties into the play, is that the costumers, Motley, had done the costuming for Romeo and Juliet, for the stage they'd done the costuming for the original adaptation of the turn of the screw for the stage so seeing the costumes in this it is just so perfectly fitting
0: yeah um and of course you had mentioned the actors we both mentioned the acting but getting deborah kerr who's like at this point even in her career considered to be a heavy-hitting actress that can handle a lot of really demanding roles before this, which I thought was interesting. She did the King and I, and this is kind of like the dark King and I, where she has to go look after children. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Except instead of teaching the King of Siam to love, she's trying to ward off these dark spirits that have latched onto these children.
1: Supposedly latched onto.
0: Supposedly.
1: Yeah. I'll be the first to call her bluff. She's fucking nuts. <laughs> She's fucking crazy. I'm sorry she is. Or not. Dun dun dun. Dun 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 dun. I don't know. That's really up for debate. Like it is with most uh films about people that are an unreliable narrator, as it were, and losing their minds that is it all happening in their head or is this what's really happening? And they're the only people that see the truth. A fascinating concept in this. Aside from the concept of, of love being the, the problem here. Well, because it kind of is.
0: How is love the problem?
1: She says it right from the beginning. That's what she keeps needling and needling the maid about to find out if the former valet and the former governess had been in love. Mm -hmm. And anything about brotherly and sisterly love is warped to a disturbing degree in this. Yes. Yeah. Her herself seems absolutely loveless. Their uncle is a gadabout, but, I mean, that's not love. And the current maid is, uh, from what I could tell, completely chaste. I don't think she mentions any sort of love interest whatsoever. So the only representations of love in this are extremely dark
0: yeah that's definitely true now the plot of this movie is basically deborah kerr's character miss giddens is hired to be a governess for this what would you call it like it's it's not like a villa but it's like a it's like a country home yeah
1: it's a country home it would be called a villa Mm -hmm. um but yeah. it's, a, it's a
0: mansion in the country. It's a
1: massive, massive compound. This,
0: this dude uh, was put in charge of these two children. He's their uncle and admittedly wants nothing to do with them. He is a charming, swinging bachelor about time. He's got no time to be looking after some fucking kids
1: yeah, he's a he's a bachelor, a gadabout, and a gentleman that lives in the city. He owns this estate, Bly, in the country, but he doesn't like going there because it's boring to him. And he has no real interest in the children at all.
0: Not really. He is content to just have her take care of everything. And he's... Super specific about the fact that not only does he want her to take over the entire household, he doesn't want to hear from her. To
1: the point that the school of one of the children, the son, or the son, the nephew, gets sent a letter. The letter from the school gets sent to the uncle, where it rightfully should have been sent. He doesn't even open it, doesn't even read it, repackages it in another envelope and sends it to the governess. And is basically, here, you read this and don't tell me what it says, because I don't care.
0: Right. I love him. <laughs> at the one hand, I mean, he is putting these children up. But at the second hand, he's an extremely wealthy landowner that it, it is of no financial impact to him whatsoever if these children exist or not exist. He has this home in the country that's staffed, I guess, to take care of them or to just make sure that the Mansion doesn't become dilapidated.
1: Basically, yeah. He'd only estate regardless. If the children didn't exist, he wouldn't sell off the estate. It's his. He can have a ball there once a year.
0: Oh, wouldn't that be grand?
1: That's what I would do. (laughs) And I'd do the same thing with the children. So in his defense, if anyone were to ever accuse him of being absent, I'd say, yeah, totally. He's absent. I'd be absent too. Except though I probably would have the kids ship somewhere else so I can go enjoy my country home once in a while.
0: Yeah, that's that definitely would be a use for it, I guess.
1: Well, you said to yourself he has the means; he could ship them wherever he wants. But otherwise, he tends to keep them sequestered in the country.
0: Sequestered is right. Yeah. There is not a lot going on over there, except for the fact that it would be a heaven for children. I guess the idea of wide open spaces uh, a lake and a house where they basically have the run of it
1: heaven or a boiler room you know one of the two and that's the premise of so many gothic romance and gothic novels and gothic horror in literature and in screen is that these places can be that heaven and hell because there is nothing to fucking do but sit there and assume and suspect and think and brood which is what i would do Mostly, and trim roses, which they do a lot of as well. That or, like you said, it's heaven for children. They do nothing but play around the ponds and enjoy their little tortoise friends. and
0: Rupert the tortoise. <laughs>
1: Rupert. Rupert's <laughs> amazing. Rupert's cool. <laughs> Even when she tries to take him swimming. Which you can forgive. She's a little kid. She I suppose.
0: Know. that uh, Every time she's holding that turtle, I just felt bad for it. I was like, come on, that turtle doesn't want to be there. That turtle <laughs> doesn't know it's in a movie. Why are you dunking it in water? I just, I don't know. But we're introduced to Flora singing mindlessly and just being a little girl with a turtle.
1: She is a precious sparrow. I love her. She's a perfect kid. If she were someone else's in a country home far, far away from me, yeah, perfect kid. I think she's an angel. Super sweet.
0: Mm -hmm. Miles, not so much? No. (laughs) He's
1: got his uh, creepy toad reptile looks to him. At first you'd think, you know, she's a perfect angelic little sparrow and he's like a sweet little gentlemanly mouse or something. The
0: Lord Fauntleroy or you something like that.
1: He's precious-ish. <laughs> and then he becomes creepier and creepier.
0: Well, awfully mature for his age and, you know, constantly calling the governess my dear and being so dismissive about why he was expelled from school and so quick to flattery anytime they were discussing something that he didn't want to talk about he would distract with flattery Mm
1: -hmm.
0: and that was a really frustrating aspect of this movie where characters won't be direct with each other the most blunt character in this entire film was the uncle at the very start of the movie where he's just like i don't want to take care of these kids sound bad Sorry, I just don't want to. Everyone else... Yeah, or don't talk about
1: the last governess because she died.
0: Yeah, that was the only yeah. thing where he, where he he was just like, there's this tragedy in the house. But don't mention it ever because Flora couldn't stand it. Um, the one standout thing in this film that I think really strengthens it even more than the dialogue itself is having two extremely strong child actors in the role. Now, I had wondered when we were watching the film if this was talent or do you think this was line readings? Because anytime that I see a kid do a fairly good performance, I always, especially when they sound very adult, and Miles sounds extremely adult by design.
1: There's some particular shots where they must have had many takes to just get it right. To get absolutely it, right. You know, he needs to look slimy cold and seductive all at once which is an extremely mature and extremely psychopathic trait to have yeah
0: to ask of a young boy yeah
1: it's not an inherent trait although children can be super creepy all by themselves Mm -hmm. so they might have lucked out with just an extra creepy kid
0: an extra creepy kid well he has a little experience the actor Named uh, Martin Stevens was in Village of the Damned just the year previous. Which is
1: an excellent primer for his role as Miles because, yeah.
0: If you want to talk about creepy creepy children, there is few better films than that. Uh, Pamela Franklin playing Florence in her debut role.
1: Which is um, an amazing, amazing beginning for what you would term a Scream Queen.
0: Yep. Uh, uh, she would maintain her career in horror through to the 1970s and always impressive, always really, really strong. And you had also pointed out to me about the line readings. Some of these scenes are just too long, yeah. too long and uncut. And then once you told me that and I really thought about it, I was like, yeah, you're right. This can't be... And they're they're
1: move, they're in motion. It's not like they've memorized and practiced. And this is several takes later. Um, there's many interactions to be had. There's props to be handled. There's a lot going on. Very complex roles for these kids. Um, so I suspected that they'd come from the theater, like so much did in this. Right. Um, they also did have these peers amongst them that were. Already, like I said, Academy Award winning actresses and actors and writers and stuff like that. So they had this pedigree surrounding them. Mm-hmm. And they'd, the little boy had already been in a film that was... He was probably treated with a lot of um, preparation and a lot of schooling. So it was sort of lightning in a bottle.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. When Miss Giddens gets to the house, everything seems mostly normal. The biggest concern that she seems to have is the fact that Miles was expelled from school. And you could really have left supernatural elements out of this, and it could have just been just like this weird hoity-toity British movie about... Some, A
1: girl losing her fucking shit?
0: Well, yeah. But about like children that are disobedient? Like I said, it's the Dark King and I.
1: There are many gothic stories that are exactly that, where... Mm-hmm. And watching this, yeah, you often almost forget that there is a supernatural element and Mm -hmm. she is losing her shit, especially when she has, you know, too much time on her hands and has a dream or just too much thinking going on in there. (laughs) And she all of a sudden turns around to the very next human that enters the room and comes up with these wild accusations. That turn out to be true in some cases. In some cases. But if you... To remove the supernatural element, you'd be like, why is she saying these things? Why is she accusing these things? Why is she guessing these things? Has she dug around in the attic a little too long and found some mold that is tempering her fucking faculties? But then you remember, like, oh, yeah, she saw that ghost.
0: Right. And that is how they introduce these elements. First, you start hearing voices somewhat innocuous. It could have been anybody. Uh, But, oh, no, I wasn't there. or I wasn't saying anything. And so you start to question what actually is going on at this house. Then one moment in the garden, all of the sound stops. Nature and the singing of Florence, all of this stops. And then she sees a... Apparition. Apparition on the top of the house. She goes up there and sees Miles playing with dubs. I find that far creepier. Just coming up there and here's like a little boy covered in birds. (laughs)
1: <laughs> i don't know i didn't that didn't strike me as odd at all
0: that struck me as super odd like hey buddy what you doing <laughs> hanging out with the pigeons i see
1: he probably does it every single day there's remember nothing to fucking do at this estate nothing nothing to fucking do of course he probably goes up there for 20 minutes half an hour every mm-hmm. single day to go and play with the
0: doves his delivery in that scene is really good so and honestly from the moment that that kid shows up from his very last scene there's just something slimy about him
1: well he's fawning and dismissive which right away is this push-pull of some sort of strange like um, personality disorder that I can't quite put my finger on from the Mm get-go he is slimy yeah for a little sweet beautiful little mouse of a kid
0: Yeah, for every moment where he seems like a sweet boy, this very genuinely kind and happy kid, he'll have these moments where you can see that he's very manipulative and a liar and knows how to use flattery to deflect. And then there's other moments with him where you can see that he's genuinely upset that his uncle doesn't care about him. Even though he's still stating it flatly, these are facts. He fully
1: understands. He fully
0: understands, but it's also sad to hear him say it. Just the idea that, oh, you know, you have like these two kids that have no parents anymore and you just dump them in this beautiful big home and they have servants and they'll never want for anything in their entire lives, but they want someone to love and care for them. You find out that the previous governess died very suddenly, and not a lot of details about what actually happened.
1: No, because there's a bad habit in this show of people wanting information or asking a question and getting absolutely no answer or getting deflected or getting the question turned on to them, like, what do you think happened? And that's Mm -hmm. the end of the conversation, or it isn't my place to say.
0: Now that that sounds like... Mrs. Gross. Oh, very much. Coming. Mrs. Gross is the elderly caretaker of the elderly, uh, older uh, nanny, I suppose she was, uh, nanny slash maid. She was, and I've written about this movie before on spiderpictures.net, and I think I remember saying that that was probably the most frustrating character to me, because she had a metric fuck ton of information about what had gone on in that house i
1: love the word metric fuck ton i'm so glad you dropped that bam i love that i don't know why anyway she did and whenever asked it was always oh no 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 no, that's not for me to talk about or oh no 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 it's too upsetting or oh no 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 no."
0: she's just imagining it she's just imagining it like just stuff and nonsense stuff and nonsense and if you just pretend like you didn't hear anything and you pretend like you didn't see anything, well, then that's just good enough, isn't it? And nothing happened, right? Yeah. I mean, what you, you, fa- you don't realize is Mrs. Gross's full name is Gross Negligence, because the idea that she has these children in her charge before the governess shows up, and while the previous governess was there with the, was he the valet?
1: Yes, personal assistant, basically, but yeah, valet is a term who, I used. Who
0: took the run of the house... And and you find out that well they had a rather sort of scandalous really scandalous relationship with each other. Yeah, it hints on nothing that I would consider a romance. Mrs. Gross certainly didn't consider it a romance. No,
1: no, she's like ultra submissive, and he's super fucking dominating.
0: Well, there was that, and and the idea that he used to slap her around, and mm. she loved it. Yes, and so it was really entering into this weird realm of debauchery like on this underlayer of this prim and proper home in this prim and proper era where people tend to forget that we're all we've always been into the same shit all of us like as a people we're all into the same shit we've always been into like Weird sex and kinks are not something that's developed in the last 25 years.
1: No, and probably more readily and pointedly developed when you're stuck out in the country with nothing to do. And actual authority figures that can bend your mind a little bit. And then you take uh, uh, someone in the position of a governess, not so much with Mrs. Gibbons, but with maybe some others who are in that position or put themselves in that position because they want some sort of motherly role because they want some sort of family life and then you stick them with somebody like quint was reportedly extremely manipulative and a super dark debaucherous horrible person so you stick this like wanton female a submissive wanton female who wants some sort of companionship and domineering with this guy in the middle of the country i think this is probably a lot of the fount of some of our more modern uh, bdsm type relationships so there's this, like, on its surface, domestic violence problem happening in the house in front of the children.
0: hmm In front of Mrs. Gross, in front of the children. And apparently, Miles and uh, Quint, right?
1: Yeah, Quint is the man, yeah, the uh, valet. The
0: valet, Quint, would go off together and talk, and he would teach him how to ride and... And who knows the type of things that he had said to him. And after he died, suddenly. um, Did they mention how he died?
1: Yeah, he'd been out and uh, they're not sure exactly what happened, but he'd come in and had uh, been bleeding. He had a head wound Mm. and it collapsed and uh, Miles was who found him. And apparently it was quite gory.
0: Oh, I see. I see. I don't know how I missed that, but...
1: You get some glimpses through Miles of how Quint was supposed to have been. When they do show the scene of Miles riding a horse where Mrs. Gibbons is freaking out for I don't know what reason because he's riding the horse too violently and free. I have no idea. (laughs) Because that's kind of what it looks like when you ride a horse.
0: Riding a horse at this hour. (laughs) It's unnatural.
1: (laughs) Um, But I'm sure that he learned to ride wild like that from quint and there's a lot of little personality things that you just as the audience assume he got from that man's personality and when you do get glimpses of quint in this it is this like creepy wild type character right? oh yeah he's
0: like kind of moist looking and his <laughs> hair's all wild and he's got a very intense cold stare dark dark eyes and yeah
1: yeah, creepy and wild pretty much sums up what we're supposed to be thinking that Quint was like.
0: Mm-hmm. Very much like a lower class person.
1: In the book when uh, Gibbons is asked, when she spies Quint, or sees, because we're talking like fucking 1888 Bretts here, because we've watched this film and been steeped in it way too long. Um, when she sees him, she's asked, was he a gentleman? And she says, no, not at all uh which has a little more bearing back then Mm -hmm. so that's to mean that he was if he's not a gentleman he's a scoundrel
0: yes yeah
1: which you would point out when we're watching this that the terminology in the words carry so much more weight Mm -hmm. um i'll refer to my computer mouse as a vile bastard or something which doesn't mean a fucking hell of a lot because we throw these words around and worse yeah and way worse a lo- much worse, uh, way more often over stupid crap and inanimate objects. Where back then words were carefully
0: weighed. Oh hell yeah! If you were to say someone something was horrid or wicked, or something was sick, like these words had weight to them, and it in was in the
1: biblical sense.
0: Yeah, and and not something that you would toss around casually. Almost as if they were an affront on their sweet. Innocent existence. You bringing even just like these words into the house, like you would be shushed, and because everything's all about presentation, which again is so much about how this movie is effective in the seedy underbelly that was going on in this house—the depravity, the the sex, the the weird. Uh, submissive dominant relationship the fact that they didn't care that people saw them together
1: Mm -hmm. whether they they were making out or fighting
0: yeah they would just do it in front of anyone who saw them they didn't care Quint had the entire run of the house but and that is such an affront to like the prim and proper existence that this uh, this era is taking place in the film
1: Mm mm-hmm
0: And so since presentation is everything, you can't have, you won't even mention it. It happened. It's gone now. And we'll all pretend like it's not happening, even though that the darkness that that brought into the house is still there. Like a mold. Like a mold.
1: I like that Mrs. Gibbons is the first and only, it seems, person to ever question any of the actions that have ever gone on in that house that have tainted it. By questioning not only every single move everybody makes, Mm -hmm. which can come across as a little crazy. She even questions the silence because that's the number one. As far as the um, Mrs. Gross turning every question down with that stuff and nonsense... The children pretty much answer every question with fucking silence. They're no help at all
0: Yeah, for most like, of the movie. Almost like they don't
1: even hear her talk. Exactly. And there's this one part where Mrs. Gibbons' line... She's explained to Mrs. Gross how pissed off she is because the kids won't give her any information. And she said, she lied to me. Well, it amounted to a lie. Mm-hmm. And that what amounted to a lie was silence. So she's the only person not only questioning everything that went on, the relationships that had been happening in front of the children, the relationship of the children themselves... And everything she's questioning the fact that no one will even fucking talk about it, and she's the first person it seems to ever step foot in this house mm-hmm. that has questioned why don't you fucking people talk to one another? Yeah, fascinating. It's weird though that we they allude to all these other servants, and there are like coachmen and shit, and there's like a cook and a the cook. groundskeeper. Yeah. Definitely because the grounds are impeccable. Beautiful. Immaculate, yeah. Yeah, and they're probably like 20 seamstresses on hands to keep all them goddamn dresses together. <laughs> they're beautiful. I'll tell you that. Seriously. Oh, hell yeah. I mean, yeah. You probably need three chicks to get her into that bodice. But anyway... Um, we only ever see one maid, which is funny because at that point we were like convinced, like, we're all alone here. We're all alone here. We're all alone here. And this maid walks in and they're like, oh, hello. <laughs> <laughs> and then we never see her again. And we never see any of these coachmen, henchmen, gardeners, seamstresses, mm-hmm. cooks,
0: helpers. A- again, it makes it seem very much like a play. Mm-hmm. Things are talked about and never shown. Yeah. Which, you you know, if you were doing a small stage production, that would make a lot of sense. It's like, well, no one's cast in these roles, so therefore we don't have them.
1: (laughs) (laughs) They could have gotten away without having someone play Quint and Mrs. Jessel.
0: Yeah, they easily could have gotten away with that. The fascinating thing, thinking about it now, when we're talking about how much words have power in this, everything's so deliberate, all their dialogue and everything but by their silence they seem to be giving these spirits power these dark entities power when quint dies his the previous governess is bereft totally distraught and eventually kills herself which is you know like like committing suicide in that society it's a very wicked death and so both the spirits seem to be there.
1: You know what's, what pisses me off, though? I'll tell you right now. Like, spoiler alerts or whatever. I don't care a shit. If she killed herself, she wouldn't be buried on the church ground. Period. Mm-hmm. Period.
0: No, that's true.
1: It's a lie and a farce and a it's an error and it's wrong. And I'm upset.
0: It always occurred to me that it is possible that Miles killed her. Drowned her in the lake possessed by the spirit of quint could be quint's
1: always shown as wet so it could very well be
0: in order to have her in death Mm -hmm. because if he was truly a wicked person
1: nor if he truly loved her
0: would not the ultimate form of control being i have denied you the gates of heaven and now you will walk the world with me and i own your soul Perhaps he used to say things like that to her when they were alive. In
1: the night times? In the night times. It always
0: occurred to me that the only evidence we have that the previous governess killed herself was the fact that Mrs. Gross said so. And frankly, I do not find her a reliable source.
1: Oh, fuck no, not at all. The only other thing that hints to that is how much time Flora spends near the water. Mm-hmm. if you're going to believe that she is possessed with that spirit. Mm-hmm. It's cute that the children do. And it's written impeccably and it's shot impeccably in that way to really drive home that fact at first subconsciously and then later in in by being told and shown that that's probably what's what the case is, that they're possessed by these people, where Miles spent so much time where Quint was and doing things Quint did. Mm-hmm. And... Flora spends as much time doing things that Mrs. Jessel had done, especially hanging out where she'd apparently died, mm-hmm. having an affinity with that spot—an inexplicable affinity with that mm-hmm. spot. Yeah,
0: and singing that song, mm-hmm. "A Willow Whaley," It's depressing as fuck. It's depressing as, fu- it's depressing as fuck. It's a child singing "Acapella." They start the movie with it, and it's almost—it's almost as present in this movie, like every like either through melody or somebody actually singing it fucking like axel foley's theme and like beverly hill cop like uh-huh. we're just like when you watch beverly hills cop and i know this is a horror podcast and i'll get back to it but like when you watch beverly hills cop that fucking da, 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 that plays more than i fucking even remembered because i watched it within the last like two years and i was like damn, that fucking song plays a lot. Too much.
1: And there's even, like, I love slash hate films that have a, a theme song like that mm-hmm. that's played uh, with different adaptations through the film
0: yeah. and
1: different instruments. And, like, that's what's on <laughs> in the muzak in the elevator. And that's what the kids are playing at the Christmas recital. And, like, the same fucking mm-hmm. song. But this song, of course, it's almost almost entirely sung by flora over and over there's a few piano renditions of it
0: the piano rendition and the music box was the other thing
1: yeah now there's a point though in this film later like you know three quarters of the way through where miss gibbons asks flora why do you keep singing that song and by then i snapped and i was like it's because it's the only fucking song they know
0: it's the the only song in existence yeah in in this isolated country country villa. yeah they have
1: no other access to any other songs.
0: Nope. Not a single song exists.
1: No wonder they're fucking losing their minds.
0: Just, just they're all sitting there in that mansion, repeatedly singing one depressing song over and over again.
1: There was, um, I had lived downstairs from these friends of mine. They owned this large house, and I rented the granny suite basement apartment type thing. And the kids' room were, was above mine, and they'd fall asleep to dvds and stuff mm-hmm. and you know when you've done a dvd it goes back to that horrible screen with this horrible music and it just plays it over and over and over and right. over again um inglorious bastards has like the worst screen for that i hate it but anyway the, these kids had the sesame street so oh. almost every single night
0: okay
1: this fucking sesame street theme song would play over and over and over all fucking night long. I don't know how. Apparently they couldn't hear it from their room, but it's all I could hear. And I'd just go to the breaker box and throw the kid's breaker for the bedroom off and on. Shut it down.
0: Really? Yeah,
1: I could not handle that. So I don't know if maybe singing that song over and over and over again was what drove their governess insane. It probably <laughs> drew, drove Quint insane, and that's why he beat the governess. <laughs> Shut them fucking kids up.
0: Well... <laughs> 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 I cracked that nut. <laughs> um, there are moments with Miss Gibbons where she is experiencing supernatural events, walking with a candelabra, down the hallway. And it's interesting because very few with the exception of seeing a few silhouettes. And there's and and a lot of the times there's no real indication that what who you're looking at is dead. Only that they're not recognized.
1: I really enjoy that about this film as far as the supernatural elements, because if you uh read up a lot on ghosts and apparitions and like holes Holzer and older ghost hunting stuff. Ghosts didn't appear the way that they appear in fiction or like banshees or like Slimer or whatever. They looked like <laughs> you thought there was a person there and mm-hmm. when you walked over there wasn't anyone there and mm-hmm. that's fucking freaky.
0: There was a trend in cinema that is over like the the last oh 25 years 20 years at the very least, once a lot of Asian cinemas' influence came in, that ghosts began to have a very specific look and a very specific movement. Everything about them became, this is how they look. It's almost like when you're depicting aliens and everyone does like the skinny aliens with the big eyes, everyone's like, that's the... Greys. The greys. That's the aliens that that we recognize. Previously, a lot of times, spirits were either represented through noises and shadows, or they just looked like people. Mm-hmm. Uh, or sometimes they looked like zombies. It was weird, but... When you, wa- when you watch a movie like The Innocents, which, again, shows more spirits than you would think. not as It's not like... Because a couple years later, The Haunting, another very famous old haunted house movie... That gets by on not showing ghosts whatsoever. Yeah. It just gets by on weird molding and close shots and sound effects. 13 Ghosts came out just before The Innocents. That has a lot of specters in it or a lot of visual stuff.
1: Yeah, almost like a graphic de- depictions of, of ghosts. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And, and innocent and, and The Innocence kind of has this weird blend of both because most of the time... It's what Mrs. Gibbons is hearing that's freaking Mm -hmm. her out or doors, uh, shutters, banging, that kind of stuff when she's wandering the halls with the candelabra and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. Which is great, but it also, if she's not specifically seeing something and no one else is around, uh, it's hard to tell if she is even experiencing anything because she's wound so tight at this point. But that's what brings her to the breaking point is every time she has these experiences, she's dealing with characters that will not speak of them. That has to be the most fucking frustrating thing in the world, which is brought to a boiling point where the ghost appears in front of Flora and she gra- basically grabs the child and forces her to look at it and, uh, and says, You're, you see this. This is right in front of you. Look at it and and Mrs. Gross is there as well and flora loses her shit
1: yeah and now it's a it's a schrodinger's cat kind of like thing right where flora is either violently denying that she sees it or is just being physically abused in his Terribly traumatized by this crazy woman who's insisting she's seeing her dead fucking caretaker.
0: Yeah, which is vile, whom she was apparently very close with. Very,
1: very close with, and it's a very painful memory to bring up at all. To the point that her father, or her father, her uncle, uncle yeah. had insisted that the governess never bring up the other governess because it's far too upsetting. Now, looking at it one of two ways: that either, yeah, that's entirely right, and she was in the wrong to to do that. She's crazy and mm. cruel. Or there really is a ghost standing over there and everyone else can see it and is in denial. And Ms. that's Gib- enough to make you fucking crazy.
0: Miss Gibbons is very insistent that, it, that she has this dialogue with Mrs. Gross afterwards when Mrs. Gross is just... I I've never heard anyone this upset and I've never heard her say the things that she's saying. Where would she have heard these words and who knows really what she's saying except for, you know screaming screaming yeah that's all i can
1: hear screaming and head shaking
0: yeah she's screaming
1: she screams for about 10 minutes
0: oh it's a lot of screaming miss gibbons says that if a child's having a nightmare isn't it best to wake them from it mrs gross suggests that given her experience and this is really the first time mrs gross is is doing anything other than looking worried and saying like can't we all just Pretend like nothing's going on. She and, and the fact that Miss Gross comes off as a, as a woman of the time who would not have been educated. She can't read, uh, and who has been a, a caretaker for her entire She's life. She's
1: Probably born into that position. Yeah,
0: probably. Yeah. And she says that if, if she she tells Miss Givens, like, look, you're young, and you don't you haven't looked after as many children as I have, and sometimes the worst thing you can do. For a child is to wake them up when they're having a nightmare. The shock of it. The shock of of, of that disturbance when they're having this experience. And Ms. Givens won't heed those words. Because she wants to bring light to what's happening. Which again goes back to what I was saying. I lost my train of thought, as I tend to do. About the importance of language in this movie. Because while they're all not saying anything... They seem to be, if not directly giving power to these dark entities, maintaining the status quo of these dark entities existing. What Miss Gibbons is looking for is for Miles to call Quint by name, to acknowledge that this is what's happening. And somehow that would have them lose their power it's like reverse Freddy krueger it's like <laughs> like like when you turn your back on freddie and say like i've i take back every bit of power i've given you and he turns into like sparkles and, and vanishes
1: or like when a, a priest needs to know the name of the demon inhabiting a possessed body which is basically what she's doing is exercising these yeah but this ain't Pazuzu. this the is
0: fucking yeah this is quint the dirty
1: well, that's basically what she's trying to force out of him.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So in... Pazuzu. <laughs> it's a lovely day for an exorcism. Um, they have uh, uh, Miss Gibbons' big plan after her little showdown with Miss Gross. Which, showdown is a generous term. She just says, no, I'm going to do what I want to do. Get everyone out of the house. Florence and Miss Gross are to go to England to meet up with their uh, her uncle. Well, not Miss Gibbon's uncle, but Florence's uncle. Yeah. And all the servants are to be sent home. And she is just to be alone with Miles in the house.
1: Like either a romantic tryst or an exorcism. One of those two things is what comes to mind. Because I was creeped out when she suggested this. But the other half of me was like, this is the only way that she can exercise this demon, in my mind, or make him admit mm-hmm. what he's seeing and what has been going on in that house.
0: It's true. And she arrives to these conclusions about how this happened. By... She...
1: By staring at a little spot in the wallpaper for hours and days and eons. Well... Centuries.
0: Her first bit of evidence after all the little crazy bits were happening was finding an old music box in the attic along with a picture of Quint on a cracked frame up into the attic. Um, She gets Mrs. Gross to divulge information that these two people had an affair, and it was a very unorthodox sexual relationship. And we know that Quint died, and we know that soon after, uh, the previous governess died.
1: Miss Jessel.
0: Miss yeah. Jessel, yeah. And then we know that the children just maintain their happy dispositions, but the second Miss Gibbons arrived there she knew something was off with the children. And so yeah, she just stared into the void until she came up to the conclusion that, well, there's these horrible things in control of the children, making them whisper to each other and have secrets and and are secretly horrible people.
1: And when they hold hands, she's like uncommonly freaked out, which is absolutely not untoward by any stretch of the imagination for a little tiny brother and sister to hold hands, even in today's day and age, but especially back then, in like the 1890s when this was supposed to have taken place or whatever. Yeah. Now, that is like totally normal. Everything these kids are really truly doing, even Miles being creepy little reptile that he is, at times. Because he's a precious little mouse at others. All of that is absolutely 100% super fucking normal. The thing that is the most abnormal, if you take the supernatural element out, is that she sits there and stares like a fucking freakazoid for a God knows how long before making these really crazy accusations do, like uh, surrounding the relationships of these people. She does have some dream sequences, though, that do help. Mm -hmm. Aside from the supernatural element and seeing these things that definitely are driving her crazy and definitely are, even though they give no real hint toward the story that she's concocted in her head, the dream sequences sort of do. And I really enjoyed that. They don't really do dream sequences like that in film anymore. Mm
0: -mm.
1: And I think a lot of filmmakers could really learn something from this film in particular. Um, The dream sequences are just really well done. The segues from scene to scene are are really really well crafted and believable like it's a it's a weird term to put on a dream sequence because we don't have dream sequences like that in real life <laughs> no, we don't <laughs> or when we describe them, you know things don't go all hazy and superimposed upon one another. Things like that I don't become transparent when I'm telling you about a dream mm-hmm. um, but the uses of transparency and juxtaposition the sound all of that uh does have a real like otherworldly feel to it and a dreamlike feel to it where most dream sequences don't feel dreamlike I, I really like those um, it also helps with her insanity right so if you does, want to call it that yeah you know it seems to be and that's the 50-50 as far as you know Miss Gross maintains that it's the best to leave a child having a nightmare and not wake them from it and the flip side of that coin is that it's best to wake from the nightmare it's she's either crazy or she's not. Yeah. Like most good gothic stories. Like most good psychotic women's stories.
0: (laughs) Um, Well, she does pay for her insistence. Once she gets Miles alone... And has, what would you call it, like a romantic tea with him or something like that? Well, it's
1: not necessarily meant to be romantic, but it comes across that way. And especially because you've been primed with these, you know, seedy fucking relationships that have gone on in that house already. The way that she's accusing the children of behaving. Mm -hmm. The weird looks that Miles definitely gives her. He is a little temptress. Oh, yeah. By the time that it comes to that Point where she has sequestered them alone in the house like lovers would disturbingly
0: it's super disturbing and
1: then he gives her a kiss right on the lips a lingering long kiss where you're an inch away from thinking he is so gonna slip her the tongue and this is gonna get really fucking dirty
0: yeah like really yeah, yeah.
1: very 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 fucking gross yeah. although I would like to see it adapted as a hentai you a little brother sister anime action show
0: so like so, like it's gonna be like farmed out to Japan and animated. Everyone's gonna become like buxom house servants and mm-hmm. stuff like that.
1: Yeah, totally. It's like um um Black Butler with ghosts and way more suggested ambiguous sexual relationships.
0: Oh my God.
1: I would watch the fuck out of
0: that. uh I would watch it from the other side of the room pretending like I'm not interested in watching it, but kind of just like,, eh, what's going on over there? <laughs> yeah,
1: but it is—it is—it is a weird, sexy moment, and it is a weird romantic hibernation that she's imposed on them.
0: And it's a—and it's a lot of acting demanded out of this kid.
1: Jesus fuck! He had to kiss that lady. Wah!
0: I know, but but like even in their final, when they're alone together in the house, finally, this this weird verbal cat and mouse game Yeah. where she's trying to get him to admit something and he's trying to get her to flat out admit what she thinks is going on, which she won't tell him directly. Yeah. It's, it's so, that is honestly, it's beautiful. It, it's so fucking good. And when we, when I, when, when this movie was suggested to us, I've I did it before for the website. I'm aware of the length of the movie, and I, I would not like. I was not looking forward to it because I thought it wasn't good. But it would just, it kind of felt like medicine, where I was just like, "Ooh, this is gonna be a, a big sit, and we're gonna have to." I'm wow, this is gonna be hard to sit through, just because we're used to a little bit more exciting affair. We sometimes slow it down for more psychological stuff here and there, but for the most part it's slashers and gore and all that kinds of stuff.
1: Yay, slashers and gore.
0: Yeah. My like, favorite. Yeah, I love that stuff too. But I love these old ghost stories too. This is another really big favorite genre of mine, but I had forgotten. Once we got to this, the, those scenes towards the end, I was like leaned forward in my chair and I was engaged And I just kept thinking to myself, I have forgotten how fucking good it is to just watch two really talented actors act (laughs) and and deliver this dialogue so flawlessly, so convincingly. And they're saying some clunky fucking sentences, not poorly written, but just because it's very prim and proper old English, so... They're not how people spoke casually in the 1960s when this was fucking filmed. Not at all. So you had these wonderful fucking dialogue scenes. And at no point did I feel like, oh, this kid can't do these scenes. This is too much for him. At no point did it seem hammy. And I just fucking loved it. And then when you get to the big moment where she is trying to force him to just say the name of this person... While his spirit is lingering over the garden, it's fucking awesome. The windows start to bleed. There's all these extra really great effects. And then, you know, big time spoilers, he does not survive this, oppo- this supposed exorcism. Yeah, it
1: feels too much like an exorcism to not call it that. I, I, you have to, because that's exactly what it feels like.
0: Even though there's nothing to really suggest it, except for the fact that you, she is attempting to get these spirits away. How she figures, she knows how to do this.
1: She is screaming at him in much the way a priest would in a, in a fictional exorcism.
0: And she is the daughter of a of a preach, yes, of a is, preach of a, preacher, of a preacher of a preacher of a preacher.
1: So she is basically screaming, "Say his name! What is his name?" In the same way that someone would be screaming the power of Christ compels you to leave the body the way that it's screamed in the exorcist. Mm -hmm. And then he is denying and screaming and shouting blasphemies back at her, this much in the way that a possessed person would when possessed by a demon. And my favorite is when he calls her a damned hussy, a damned dirty-minded hag. And she kind of is. She's not a hussy, mind you. But she is a dirty-minded hag when you think about it, but that's a... First card that a demon would play, it would be like, I'm, I'm perfectly fine. It's you thinking that these kids are fucking you sick fuck.
0: And that is what she's thinking. Oh, definitely. She thinks that they're having, that in death, the relationship has resumed in these children. And that is a heavy concept. That's a
1: fucking horrible accusation to make. Yeah. That is fucking horrible and crazy. Mm Mm-hmm. But if and how, right...
0: If she's right, then holy fuck, you have to stop it. And and like, I couldn't imagine trying to broach that subject with children. How do you like so? No
1: wonder they play word salad all day long and just toss it around because she's not going to just be like, "Whoa, are you guys like touching each other?"
0: Yeah, yeah what's going on? She can't on? say that.
1: No, she can't. 1890s. No way she, can she say that.
0: Oh hell no, and. The uh, And the concept for the movie is crazy. And then once he dies, once Miles dies, she gives him one last kiss. One last kiss right on the lips. Very interesting, I thought.
1: Only a tiny one, though. Nothing like that lingering,
0: no, but sexy I mean, thing that she well, no, got from he, him. He's dead at this point. But I was like, what's that for?
1: Maybe it's just so much blood-gutsy horror that we watch that I'm all like kissing the corpse. That's all right.
0: Maybe. I thought that perhaps it was this example of this darkness has left you and you're now dying and innocent. I will afford you a kiss as a non-possessed, non-creepy child. It, oh, as his last right in as, a way. Yeah. yeah. He, like, the, the, like the one thing he'll be denied now because... He died a boy, like, I will give you a kiss of a woman as you've already died. That was kind of my take on it. Um,
1: Mine was, it was just simply a kiss goodnight that a governess would bestow upon her charge.
0: But I would would buy that if it was on the forehead. It was the lips that seemed a little bit more romantic. You know what I mean? I don't know. Not it's to sound also, like a fucking creeper or anything. No, like it's that. it's
1: a cultural distance too. I don't know if getting kissed on the mouth was so abnormal in the eighteen hundreds no, or true. like early nineteenth century. Like I have no idea. Or late nineteenth century. I don't know. I get all those numbers mixed up.
0: I'm no good at math. <laughs> all right, no one's asking. I you suck at just, math. All right, no one's asking you to do
1: math. Although the math scene, my favorite ghostly apparition scene was when she sees. The former governess at the desk, and she's weeping and crying. Although she says that she said something, I didn't hear her say anything except weeping and moaning. Lots and crying. Of crying. Yeah, and she goes to up to her, and there's no one there, even though she was only like ten feet away, which is a super creepy ghost scene. But then she looks down at the chalkboard because it was in the schoolroom, and one of the children had been doing their math on a chalkboard, and there's tears on it. And Mm -hmm. that was just such an amazingly subtle way to show that these ghosts are really, really manifesting. Mm -hmm. I like that scene a lot. Anyway, I don't know if there is that cultural distance about the kissing on the mouth. We certainly make it out to be extremely fucking creepy and extremely adult and extremely intimate Mm
0: -hmm.
1: now. Yes. And they play on that with that kiss that Miles gives her because it is intimate and adult and creepy well intimate and adult anyway i don't know maybe i just think it's creepy because it's people
0: touching (laughs) that would be you (laughs) did you ever get a sense as a kid because i'm assuming as an adult though but did you ever get us a sense as a kid that you're in a place that's giving you an overactive imagination
1: As an adult, yes. As a child, sure. I don't know. I'm
0: not sure what you mean. Well, I mean, like, when I was a kid, for example, uh, I shared a... When I was very young, I shared a bedroom with my brother. And inside our closet, there was a smaller rack for clothes. I guess the idea was, like, kids are short, so here's a smaller rack in which kids can hang their clothes within a closet or something. I don't know. It was just in the closet. It was a, a, a wood structure and on either side were white bears and across the white bears was a bar in which you hung your clothes on. So, when the closet door was open and the lights were off, those bears became the most horrifying things ever. They would morph in my mind because my vision was blurred, it's dark, but they were white, so they would pop on any bit of light that was seeping into the bedroom.
1: I love that.
0: (laughs) And so they would become terrifying to me, even though it was completely in my head. And I'm only saying this because we're dealing with an old haunted house movie, and there's definitely moments in this film where Miss Givens could be just wigging out at... Nothing, the molding on the the, the, the windows and, and shutters banging and stuff like that.
1: There's that one point with that scream where you can't tell if the scream comes from the fucking molding or if it comes from her mouth, but sorry, carry on.
0: So what I'm asking is, did you have any of that when you were a kid? Just freaking the fuck out over something that, it's not scary. There's nothing scary about it at all. And to the point where like, I would be like fuck. I gotta close the closet door because I can't look at these stupid bears and get freaked out by them.
1: Yes, but slightly opposite. I'd relate a story um, episodes and episodes ago about the the rat in our basement. But so I was scared to go down the basement, but for a real fucking reason. But I'd still do it anyway. But I'd still be scared. But there was this, there was salamanders and, and a rat down there. Disgusting. But anyway, country homes like look. I'm glad they didn't show the basement of Bly because it's probably just the Cascama amount down there. I know it. Oh,
0: God, probably.
1: So, yeah. But in that, I liked it because I was a weird kid and still am a weird kid. I had a doll, this clown, this like stuffed weird gingham fabric, red and white clown. And he was like just a... Duffed clown same sort of design as a teddy bear but he had a plastic almost like a porcelain doll's face but it's plastic clown face okay and he had like his little hat kind of went forward almost like a smurf hat and ended in a little bell or a little pom-pom um and he had a big red nose horrible clowny features that were you know cute. He a little like triangle makeups on his cheek and big bright eyes and a weird little mouth and his big red nose you could twist and it probably played the same song that you hear in this fucking movie. I don't even remember. <laughs> but you twisted up his little nose and he sing a little song. Uh, probably just clap music or whatever. Uh, I love that little stupid clown. So the stupid little clown would live in my room, and I'd play with him in the day, I suppose, and stuff. I was I had probably been tucked in with him since I was a baby, uh, but he was in my room, and I remember meh- like almost every single night I would stare at his face, and as my parents were closing the lights in the rest of the house, uh, they'd go to close my door and ask, if I was still awake anyway, um, do you want your door open or closed? And I'd always be like, just close it a little, just close it a little. And they'd start closing it and like, is that enough? Is that... And this is a typical thing that parents probably go through with like all kinds of kids where, you know, how open do you want your door? How much light do you need to not be scared? But for me, it was how much light do I need to make that clown look creepy as fuck? So as they're closing the door, and the light's dying in my room, I'm watching the clown's face and it's getting weirder and creepier and morphing and becoming sinister and terrifying. And right when, right, not before, but right when I was like, that clown is going to eat me. I was like, (laughs) perfect. That's enough. But why? I don't know. I don't know. Go back and ask little four-year-old Lydia that. No, thanks. (laughs) Because she might bite through your Achilles tendon. Or kiss you on the mouth. Either fully Bef- fucking devastating.
0: Before or after I'm dead.
1: Mm. I don't know. You'll have to go back and ask four-year-old Lydia that.
0: I don't know if I like this <laughs> train of thought.
1: You sound like Rod and Todd Flanders being told about robot Rod and Todd. Hey, <laughs> I don't like this story. <laughs> I don't know why I liked it when the clown got creepy because it was something other It was giving me an overactive imagination. It was something, man. Something that wasn't fucking my room in the light.
0: That's why you're a creative genius. You just like stimulate me. It's probably
1: why I have no friends.
0: (laughs) I'm your friend.
1: Yeah, it's true. I scare you though, obviously. (laughs) A little bit. Yeah, just now anyway. A little bit. Yeah,
0: usually not. I try not to come here after dark anymore. Anyway, that's The innocence. Watch it or don't, I don't fucking care.
1: I do care. I think that everyone should because it is a masterful film and it's beautifully written. And in fact, you should watch other things um, related because this thing, watching this, makes me feel very, very sad that I haven't seen Crimson Peak yet. And Mm -hmm. Chris from Bind Torture Cast went to see Crimson Peak and he mentioned it on the show and I wish that the whole show was about Crimson Peak, even though I know that a lot of people wouldn't be interested in that sort of thing and I need to go see Crimson Peak now because not only have I watched The Innocents now, I read through again because I had been read The Turn of the Screw uh, portions of it as a bedtime story by my grandmother as a child. Um, so I've been rereading The Turn of the Screw. I have been reading a lot of Lovecraft because I was working my way through a chronological rereading of all of that. I watched the others in preparation for this, which is also based very loosely on The Turn of the Screw. Mm-hmm. Very, very loosely, but same sort of feeling, yeah, right? A very
0: cool movie. I like yeah, that oh, movie it's a, a lot.
1: Beautiful fucking movie. So mm-hmm. having all of those elements of this like gothic horror, like seclusion and creepy old houses and ghosts and stuff and i love that stuff i need to go see crimson peak now i wanted to go see it but after this last week and a half of immersing myself in this corner of the genre Mm -hmm. my favorite creepy corner where i used to keep my clown and make my parents close the light just to the point where it would look like a fucking demon that part i need to go see crimson peak
0: yeah that'd be definitely really cool um and that's a really good point uh, horror encompasses a lot of different places it's not just one type of horror and if you find yourself thinking that the innocence isn't for you because it's a quieter movie it's a slower pace it's a psychological horror and there's not a lot of blood and guts and entrails mm, but entrails. <laughs> but i think that even if it doesn't affect you in the same way, it's all part of that wonderful big blanket of love that is horror. The horror rainbow. The
1: horror rainbow.
0: It's it's part of the horror rainbow. Like, the that... blanket
1: of love? What the fuck? Uh, sorry, I was
0: mixing metaphors, but it is part of the horror rainbow that we skip along every day. And
1: <laughs> Do me on it.
0: <laughs> Do me on it. <laughs> Sometimes I've noticed, uh, it was brought to my attention that I I laugh a lot at seemingly my own jokes on this podcast. What you dear listeners don't see is the fucking looks that Lydia gives me when I say some of the shit that I say. That is mostly what I'm laughing at. And also, uh, sometimes, uh, I got caught the other day listening to my own podcast and uh, I was laughing and like, what are you laughing at? And I was like, ah, uh, I was listening to myself and I said something f- kind of funny and made me laugh.
1: <laughs> yeah, you're funny as fuck. It's true, man. It's probably also nervous laughter because I'm probably about to stab you in the temple with a steak knife. But I can't blame you for that. <laughs> That's part of the horror rainbow.
0: My murder? Yeah,
1: I know. Then <laughs> I meant no. Not yet. I meant no. The... Laughing because you're nervous. Oh, yeah. Like
0: yeah, it's, yeah. Yeah, it's true.
1: No, it is an impeccably acted film to derail entirely and, you know, distract from the whole steak knife thing. Um, oh, yeah.
0: Oh, God. No. Is, in the
1: steak knife. It is a so wonderfully acted, you will lose yourself in its black and whitedness.
0: Its black and whiteness. Its classiness. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Filmed in stunning black and whites.
1: The sound, too, is, is really, really well done. All, every line is well wrought. Every scene is perfectly set. The locations that they shot in.
0: It's beautiful. The
1: estate that they shot in specifically is ridiculously beautiful. Yeah. Everything. Even even an incidental scene outside of the church, when they're in the graveyard outside of the church, everything is perfect. So if you're a fan of things like The Woman in Black, um, which I'd also watch the Second one recently, but the first one in particular, just because of the setting alone, um, as much as that film has is made fun of, it is a beautifully shot film.
0: Oh, absolutely. Um, I i, I tease the woman in black, just but I i do i do really like that movie mm-hmm.
1: for looks. I like the aesthetic of that film and the acting in part. Um, yeah. but yeah, um, if you enjoy that, if you are one of those people that is dying to go out and see Crimson Peak. You, you need to watch
0: this. Absolutely. You definitely need to watch this. You know, uh, uh, the the song that they used uh, in this movie, Willow Whaley, was used to promote uh, Woman of Black 2. Oh,
1: really? Yeah. I don't notice stuff like that.
0: Well, now you know something because you'll listen to this episode again and again and that fact you'll take to a grave.
1: That's what we do. We teach people things about pumpkins, things about songs.
0: <laughs> Why are there so many songs about the horror rainbow?
1: So you're laughing because of the shitty looks I give you? Is that what it is? This deadpan fucking nothing look?
0: No, 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 no. It's not deadpan nothing. You also roll your eyes a significant amount of times at me. Do I? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Typically speaking, when I mention something that is not dark and gloomy or reminds me of something happy, you tend to roll your eyes.
1: That would be me. That's my particular stripe of the horror rainbow, sir.
0: The the dark the dark, we have established you the the really dark black dingy one rather right at the bottom.
1: As much as you noticed that you do laugh and have been told a couple times, even like specifically lately, that you laugh on the show and laugh at the jokes, I noticed right away, without anyone saying anything, that I don't.
0: <laughs> no, you don't laugh at me. It's all reaction. It's all facial reactions, which doesn't translate. Too great for a podcast, but I know it's there.
1: I smile sometimes.
0: It's true. Sometimes the the wetness of, of your lips parting hits the mic.
1: And the the listeners can tell I'm smiling.
0: Or, or bearing your fangs at me.
1: Meh tomato tomato.
0: <laughs> Speaking of bearing our fangs, what are we bearing to the listeners next?
1: We're mixing up our schedule because we had... I wanted to do 13 Ghosts after this really, really, really badly. Yeah, yeah. Just on theme alone. Mm-hmm. And it is... There is a barely perceptible theme that runs movie by movie, threaded like a needle, mm-hmm. through the films that we do. So I really, really would like to do 13 Ghosts after this. The contemporary 13 Ghosts.
0: Ooh, the remake. Because
1: a little bit of people getting sliced in half.
0: Oh, uh, yeah, that's I'm very true.
1: hungry for that, you know? So, yeah, 13 Ghosts is uh, coming up next. And then after that, in no particular order, we'll be hitting up um, Burnt Offerings.
0: And Hardware.
1: Hardware I'm really looking forward to. Yeah. And soon enough Clown and Coffin Baby, eventually.
0: Oh, well, hell yeah. Yeah. But don't worry. We have a wonderful list of horror just for you guys. And girls? Well, yeah. I I use guys as... as, Yeah,
1: I do it all the time, too.
0: As both men and women.
1: Us guys.
0: And if you guys have a specific request that you would like us to cover on the show, please do not hesitate to contact us on our Facebook page. You just search for Spotter Pictures uh, slash Dead Air Podcast on Facebook. Or you can hit me up on Twitter at DeadAir0001. And just tell us what you want to see, and we will put it into the rotation.
1: I'm typical Lydia, pretty much absolutely everywhere. And you can find me on Google, Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, Facebook, everywhere.
0: We're everywhere, man. We're everywhere you want to be.
1: You can leave a note on SoundCloud.
0: SoundCloud is another really good. And if you guys want to comment on anything like that, the best places to do it. Where everyone can see.
1: Yeah, on splatterpictures.net is the number one favorite. Facebook, of course, everywhere, wherever you want to. Just leave us a note.
0: Yeah. Something funny, something funny. On that note.
1: <laughs> my tummy's talking.
0: Okay, I think we're going to get out of here now. not
1: oh, talking about intestines and eating your Achilles tendon.
0: Wait a second. I thought, were you eating my Achilles tendon?
1: No, I was gnawing on whatever I'd bite it, I guess. Anything to immobilize you. I'm
0: hungry. Holy shit. Uh, Hope to see you next week. On that note, I'm Les Knight. And I'm Typical Lydia. And you've been listening to Dead Air.